Leviticus 8. We're going to go up to 10. Tonight we're going to look at spiritual stress. Spiritual stress. So we are all very familiar with stress in life, whether it's work, family, uh, national stress, stuff in the news. But I don't know how if you are very in tune with your own spiritual stress. And the people that can put stress on you spiritually. Two trees grew up near a river. One was very big. The other was little. Now the little tree looked up to the big tree. And yearned for the day that he would have such massive limbs, such towering heights, such beautiful full leaves, and such wrinkly strong bark. In comparison, the little tree felt a bit like a twig that a toddler just stuck in the mud. He yearned for the day of maturity, when he would no longer be a sapling. And one day... He said to the bigger tree, My, look at that river. Look at the golden sunshine gleaming off of it. Look at it move. Doesn't it make you thirsty? Oh, I just wish I could go and drink it all up so that I can grow up faster to be like you. And the bigger tree said, Patience, my little sapling, patience. The creator has a process in play. I know, said the little tree, but it just takes forever for the water from that river to saturate the soil, to get wet enough to go up to my roots, and then to go up my trunk and eventually get to my branches, and then to the fingers on the ends, and then to the leaves. It takes forever. Just give it a couple of seasons the older tree said. And just see what happens. Well, the little tree decided to give it a try. (laughs) That summer quickly turned into fall, and the leaves that were once green turned brown, and finally they were lost in the devilish winds. And then the snows came, and the bitter, biting storms. And then those gave way to warmer sunshine. And green little blossoms extended like new fingers on the ends of his hands and his arms. And he got excited. Ooh, ooh, growth is happening. And then summer came. And the hot sun beat down. And they hadn't had rain for some time. And it was about that moment that the little tree said... I can't believe this is all I've grown after all I went through this year. I can't even tell if I moved at all. Then you looked up at the bigger tree and realized, I am nowhere near you. Your whole weighted out thing isn't working. Bigger tree. Patience, my sapling. (sighs) Looks at the river. Feels the heat. Feels thirsty. Fine, I can't do this anymore. And so the little tree pulls up his roots one at a time and begins to move closer and closer to the river. And then, because he's not very graceful, you see, he trips on into the river. Splash! The big tree is trying not to laugh. As finally the little tree comes bobbing up to the surface. Woohoo! 
feels great. The water did. It enveloped him, embraced him like he was meant to be there. The water felt cool to his hot bark, and he could drink to his leaves' delight and contentment. Look at me, big tree. I have all the water I need. And the big tree leaned down and looked as he began to drift on down the river and said, I see you do have a lot of water, but where are you going to grow? And I sense that we do this spiritually as we try to grow in Christ. We look at what we should be or what we want to be, And we can't wait to get there. And we think, because we hear messages and we we hear our our own inner critic and we hear the devil and and culture and we think, I can do this. Just just get my act together. Pull my boots up. And and I can can be just like the best of them. And I can stop sinning and I can stop cussing. And I can stop thinking about the things I think about. And we try to muster up everything we can to dive headlong into maturity in Christ. And so what we do is we go from here and we say, this isn't going quick enough. So we look for experiences. So we jump into this um, healing movement. Or we jump over here into this Christian Zen movement. Or we jump over here to this belief system. Or over here to this new street evangelist thing. Or to, it doesn't matter what it is, and none of these things are necessarily bad. But you keep jumping in saying, this is what will fix me. This is what will fix me. And the problem is, we're gaining all of this stuff, but we have nowhere to put our roots down. We have nowhere to grow. Because we, deep inside, are in a hurry to get where we want to get. And there's a critic inside of us who says, you know you're not enough. I mean, look at the saints and the Christians and your pastor and think about God. You know you're not enough. And then you begin to think, I'm not enough. God is displeased. I haven't done enough for God. I haven't saved enough people. I haven't shared my faith with enough people. I don't tithe enough money. I don't read enough scripture. I don't pray enough. I don't pray for enough people. I don't go to church enough. And over and over and over, we tell this story to ourselves that it's not enough, it's not enough, it's not enough. So we say, I need to give more and do more and do more. And then we start expending too much of ourselves and so while we're still feeling there's not enough we start giving too much and before you know it you burn out we seem to have this hunger to overreach that which we can not reach to overextend ourselves and in the process lose our roots and our footing So, is there ever any peace? Do you ever feel that stress that you are just a terrible Christian and you are not progressing like your neighbor or your mother or your accountability partner? It can be quite a burden. But tonight we need to know. We need to know where that leads. And we need to know what Jesus actually says to you. 
He says, if you are weary and heavy laden, if you are tired, if you've been kicked around and everybody tells you that you're not enough or you don't do enough or you don't have enough, come and take my yoke upon you. For it is easy and it is light. So, let's see what God tells Israel here in this book of do's, 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 and don'ts, don'ts, don'ts. Just to heighten your blood pressure a little bit, spiritual blood pressure. Trust me, there is something here. So in chapter 8, Leviticus, last week we saw the first seven chapters take us through the offerings that Israel was to give. So Exodus ends with the tabernacle built. And the tabernacle is a tent in which inside is a room, 15 by 15 by 15 cube, cubic feet, where God's ark is, the throne on earth in which he makes heaven and earth connect. That room is so holy, no living mortal can enter if he likes his life. That room sits inside of the tent, which is holy. And this tent, only priests can enter. And this tent, with this holy of holies room, sits inside of a courtyard about 75 feet wide and 150 feet long. And this is the tabernacle. In this courtyard, you can go meet a priest with an animal and offer it to God. And God said, that's how I will meet with you. Because when the tabernacle is up at the end of Exodus, God's glory fills it and nobody can enter it. Then in Leviticus, God calls out and says, Okay, this is how you can approach the holy God. Bring to me an offering. And we looked at the five kinds of offerings that Israel can bring. Now, in chapters 8, 9, and 10... God is going to turn his attention to the priesthood that you bring your offering to. They are going to be set aside for God's use. And then they are going to perform the initial offerings that inaugurate the tabernacle for worship. Alright, let's look at it. So chapter 8. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him. Remember, Aaron is Moses' brother. He's been with him through the wilderness. Aaron has sons. These sons of Aaron will become the priesthood. Aaron is the high priest. So they are going to do all of the messy worship work in the tabernacle. Keep it clean and holy and so forth. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him. And the garments and the anointing oil and the bowl of the sin offering and two rams and the basket of unleavened bread. And assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So... What happens then is Moses takes these priests. They get washed. He then puts their special clothing on them. He then takes the special oil and anoints the head of Aaron, pours it down on him. And the oil comes down and it's meant to signify that Aaron is now God's anointed, his set aside one. Which, by the way, 
the anointed one in Hebrew is Mashiach, which you know as Messiah or the Greek Christ. Aaron here is the set aside, the anointed one. So they're clothed, washed, washed, clothed, anointed. And now in verse 14, their offerings are made. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. And he killed it. So the sin offering is because the priesthood needs to have their impurities removed. So that they can be the leaders of the people. Their sins need to be forgiven. So that they can bring others to the forgiveness of God. Then in verse 18, he presented the ram of the burnt offering. So the burnt offering, remember, is the offering in which the entire animal was consumed by fire. Not a single part of it was eaten. All of it turned into smoke and went up to God. This signified the devotion of one's entire self to God. So now the priests have their sins removed and they're devoting their entire selves to this work for God. And then there's this different offering we didn't talk about just for the priests. It's in verse 22. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took, now this is different, he took some of, the, some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. So, this ram, the blood went to consecrate, to set aside Aaron and his sons, and not just, you know, like, well, it, it, was, it was a symbolic ritual that let them know, hey, my ears, my hands, and my feet are now consecrated, are given over to the work of God. I have to be careful about what I listen to, about what I touch, and about where I go. So... This ritual is making them think of their whole being. And then in verse 30, uh, Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments. How would you like that? These new clean garments, supposed to be pure and white as a priest, and then Aaron or Moses is just like, yeah, I heard some blood and some oil on him. And now they're speckled. Perhaps just a reminder of the severity of what they do. The blood we often think of as death. But Leviticus will later tell us that God gave Israel the blood as life. The blood was a symbol that they can live in his presence. And so here they're carrying the symbol of life wherever they go. And then 31. Moses said to Aaron and his sons, uh, boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So one of the offerings they're going to eat. And there eat it and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his son shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire. And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are complete. For it will take seven days to ordain you. Now, that's not to say 
as you nudge your neighbor, it would take 30 to ordain you. It's not that the time length says something about their sinfulness. The seven days is because here we have a new Garden of Eden in the wilderness. It's a new place where God is going to live with Israel. In fact, it says that God walks among the camp, and walk is the same word in Genesis when he walks in the garden with Adam and Eve. This is a new Garden of Eden. We have a new creation happening, and Aaron and his sons are the new Adam and Eve to take care of this Eden. And so the seven days is merely saying, this is a new creation. It's going to take us a whole creation week to get this ready for what it's going to be. So seven days, they have offering food to eat, and they cannot leave the tent, which is inside the outer court. Recall, this tent is some, uh, I can't remember anymore, I think it's 30 feet wide, and it was like some 60 feet long. It's not huge. Seven days, camping (laughs) inside the tent, and not able to leave. Aaron and sons do these things. Chapter 9. So this now picks up what happened after the seventh day. It happens. The priests are now set aside for this work. Now they're going to do their job. And they're going to offer the first sacrifices for the people. And this gets really exciting. Remember, no one can worship God in this tabernacle yet. But what they're going to do enables the presence of God to meet with Israel here at the tabernacle for the first time. Chapter 9. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel and said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today, the Lord will appear to you. Oh, goody. So this, as they're getting these animals together, like, God is going to appear. He is going to consume these and come to us. They are stoked. Now, that was a lot of like, take this kind of animal, that kind of animal, this kind of offering, that kind of, you're like, uh, I, don't, I don't follow. This is what it said. You're going to have seven offerings. Two are for the priests, again, because after the seven days, I'm sure one of them sinned. So there's a sin offering and a burnt offering for the priests, again. That will be the first two. Then, there's going to be sin offerings and burnt offerings and peace offerings for the people. Okay? So the uh, priesthood goes to their offerings. Then Aaron presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering and took a handful of it and burned it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then, oh, by the way, so you might remember the grain offering always went with another offering. The idea was, especially in the burnt offering, that as the animal is burned, you might remember the word burn in Hebrew here does not mean to to uh, break down like a house on fire. It means to transform. 
So the animal, and the idea here is that the animal is transformed into smoke. He's not reduced, he just takes another form. And that form makes the animal able to go before God. And by putting their hands on this animal, the worshipers are saying, when that smoke goes up to God, it's me ascending to God. And the grain offering of cereals and wheat and stuff would go with that offering because anytime you go before a king and ascend his throne, you, you bring him a gift. That's what you do. And so that was the idea. So, verse 18. Then he killed the ox and the ram. The sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. Remember, the peace offering was unique. Another animal was killed. The blood was put in the appropriate places. But this time, the worshiper ate a portion. The priest ate a portion. And the rest went in smoke to God. So here you have, in a sense, a table in which the common person and the holy person are meeting and God is in their midst. And so it's like communion and very pre-Jesus ancient communion eating together. So they offer the, uh, he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. 19. But the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail, and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys, and you're like, oh my goodness, (laughs) and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breasts and he burned the fat pieces on the altar. So the fat went to God. But the breasts and the right thigh, Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses commanded. Then, here it comes, we're done. 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people. Now he's on the altar, right? He's just done this whole thing of, 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 of these animals being slaughtered here and his son's bringing them up the ramp, up to the altar and Aaron's there taking them and he's putting the various pieces here and there and is burning up to God. And you can imagine just what he looks like if you want to imagine it. He probably isn't the most pretty figure in the world at this point. And he's got all of that mess on him. And now he's at the top of the altar, which is right at the front of the gate. And all the people are there watching this. And he then lifts his hands up. Red and all. And it says that he blesses the people. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. So what was offered in all of that stuff? The sin offering for forgiveness. The burnt offering for surrender to God. And the peace offering. God, come and give us your peace by being among us. Eat with us. So he comes down the altar. 23. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, second time, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. 
which I suppose is an appropriate reaction if I saw fire come out of heaven and consume an altar. I probably would do the same. Now, what is this blessing that Aaron gave to the people? We sing it often here. It comes from Numbers chapter 6, which will be you know, shortly down the road. The Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. When you don't sing it, you can, I might have missed the part because I'm not singing it, but you know that one. That's the blessing He would have given the people. Oh yes, God definitely shined on the people that day. So, Israel <laughs> was used to the idea of the Egyptian gods and all the teachings surrounding them goes through this year-long wilderness journey to Mount Sinai and they complain and bread comes down and they're thirsty and water comes out of a rock and oh no, the people going to beat us up and Joshua leads them into battle and defeats them and then this God starts telling Moses that we need to like build this tent thing and so they're doing this and you can imagine the monotony and the hardships of the wilderness and doing this for a year. You get up to Mount Sinai and you see all these pieces you're like, I don't know what's going on. They finally assemble together like, ooh, that looks pretty cool and then Moses is like, no, 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 nobody come. It's not ready. Like, what's the big deal? It's a tent. And then you see this all this stuff of the priests going on, these animals and this blood and these rituals. And you're like, this is looking pretty sophisticated. And then the fire comes down. And now this whole thing looks like heaven and earth are connected here. This is like something we had not witnessed or felt in Egypt. And not even since the Garden of Eden. So now the people have this reverence and this awe for their God in their midst. But, now, if the Garden of Eden had a but, this does too. Uh, let's keep moving. <laughs> Chapter 10, verse 1. Now, Nadab and Abihu, they are two, Adam and Eve. Nadab and Abihu, they're two sons of Aaron took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And now, this, okay, fire just came down and consumed the altar and the people fall on their face in worship. And we don't know how long later, but the way this reads further on in the chapter, it seems like it's not that long after the first fire fell. A second fire falls. And now the people are shrieking in fear because two people were at the center of its blast. What in the world? So there's this celebration of worship and awe of God. And then all of a sudden, yeah, just remember who holds the power here. Boom. It's kind of like a new boss comes into town, he rolls in, and he looks like he knows what he's doing, and everyone's like, ooh, respect the man. And then everyone's settling down to hear his first words, like, I'm your boss, you two, go. What did we do? I just don't like the way you're dressed, go. And now everyone's like, oh, this kind of boss. Um, I'm not sure that's what's going on here, though. We can look at it like God is just being bossy and zapping people for doing what they're not supposed to do. 
Or we can try to piece together what Nadab and Abihu did to themselves. Let us not think they were a little bit out of line and God said, that's worthy of death. They went over the line that said, at your own risk, and did it to themselves. Now, did they know what they're doing? So what does Moses say in response? Clue number one. Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. That means set apart as something different than everything else. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Okay. So are Nadab and Abihu trying to, wow, look at the people like go crazy when Aaron did this thing. We're going to do that thing and see what happens. And maybe we'll get people to cheer us on too. Maybe. In verse 4, Moses is told how to deal with the dead bodies. And they are told not to rip their clothes or dishevel their hair, but they're to stay in the tent of meeting. And then in verse 8, we have this interesting comment that could be related. The Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. Okay, so don't drink while doing your priestly duty or you die. Well, they died. Were they drinking? And if they were drinking, that means that the alcohol altered their sense of what they should or should not be doing? Or was it simply the presence of alcohol that was inflammable? What we do know is that paganism often used intoxication as the centerpiece of their worship ceremony. So basically, the priests would get really drunk and they would let whatever happens through them in that altered state be as the divinity working through them. Were Nadab and Abihu imitating what Egyptian priests did? And is that why God is saying, we don't want drunk priests in this tabernacle? Um, there is one more option. If you will turn to chapter 16. Chapter 16. <clears throat> now, I know we're jumping chapters ahead, but what you need to know is that the chapters we just skipped, no time uh, passes. So... Chapters 11 through 15, which we will cover next week, are a parenthesis. Time stops and God has a long discussion with his people because of what just happened. Chapter 16, we finally pick the story back up. Now that in mind will make this seem a little more relevant. So in chapter 16, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, so why that preface? Because what's about to be said is related to their death. So what does he say? He says, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place, 
inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Translation. Aaron, tell your sons that they cannot go into the tent, the holy place, and then go into that 15 by 15 by 15 cubit foot room behind that massive veil whenever they want and just show up and see the glory of God because these sinful mortal humans cannot just walk on in without killing themselves. And so chapter 16 will then give us the very detailed liturgy uh, order of service for how Israel was to once a year enter into that room without dying. What it seems to me is that Nadab and Abihu entered that room which they were not to enter into. And that's why they died. Now why did they enter into it? Did they not know? They might have been drunk. They might have been thinking, you know what, I could do this glory thing too. Look where Aaron didn't go in here, watch us, everyone. I don't know why, but they went in, and that's why they die. Which leads me to see that there is no such thing as a shortcut in your spiritual life. We cannot say. I want to grow faster, so let me just barge on into that place I want to be. God says, wait a minute. You need to grow into that place. I have a process that will make you strong enough to get there. But to just dive into this because I want to be there? To just dive into that because I want to be there? Because... The voice within, or the devil, or my conscience, or what have you, is telling me that I'm not good enough, not good enough, and I need to give more and give more. That because that's happening, I'm just going to go where I don't belong, overstep my bounds, go beyond my means. That our need to shortcut leads to burnout. The fact that we have this need to take shortcuts, to try to grow faster, to get the new self-help book about more of God's peace right now. Now, there could be some help in that. But the fact that we have this need to take shortcuts, to get to where we want to be closer to God without the hard work of following God will lead to burnout. Um, in Adab and Abiah's case, quite literally. Yeah. But in our lives, you're going to feel the burn if we feel like our spiritual life is constantly this pressure to toe the line or to transgress where we've never been before and maybe aren't ready to go. And if you constantly look for the next experience to give you the sense of, God is real, yay, I'm happy. You're just like a tree uprooting yourself and launching yourself into the river so you can feel it momentarily. But you're not going to grow there. We may work for different leaders who, under the name of God, work us to death. They condemn you for sleeping more than four hours or for needing to take a break to go pray by yourself when there are people that we should be feeding. This kind of militarism is not from God. This whole, there is a holy of holies and you're not trying hard enough to get in there. 
And some people have left God, have given up on Him because they've been pushed beyond their ability and have been burned out and said, I don't want this anymore. I can't, this is too much. I feel better about myself away from these people that are supposed to love me. I feel better about myself in the world that applauds my abilities. Or you might be putting the pressure on yourself. Like we, some of the things we mentioned before, I'm not tithing enough, I'm not reading enough, I'm not praying enough, I'm not witnessing enough. Listen not to that inner critic who is not God. God never uses the word not enough. Because the cross told us that we are definitely enough. The cross said, whatever we lacked is completely here. And you are now more than enough. God is not the one demanding more and more and more. Just burn yourselves out. Come on, it's only a short life anyway. God is asking us to follow a code of order. A worship that has process. A worship that cares about the human and the God who are meeting together. In fact, that's part of the point of this detailed book of Leviticus. We read it like, oh my gosh, God is so picky. No, no, no. If you knew what paganism was like at the time, this God was basically saying, I know the pagans say, give us your cattle, give us your crops and your children, because the gods are never satisfied. But Leviticus is saying that this God is satisfied if you do this. And he's not ever going to ask you for more than this. The point of Leviticus is to tell worshipers that there is a moment when God says enough. And you don't have to keep going past that line until you burn up. Paganism didn't do that. Paganism kept asking for more and more. We don't know. We gave 50 bowls last year and we almost had a drought. Maybe we need 70 this year. Oh my goodness, we barely had enough food. Next year it's 100 plus 50 firstborn sons. That's what paganism did. Because there was no Leviticus that said, no, 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 stop here. But God told the people, I'm satisfied if you meet me where I am. Our need to shortcut, to cut corners, to get there quicker will lead you to burnout. And maybe you're there tonight. Maybe you're just like, you're a crisp. You feel like your feet are dangling over hell more than in church. God is saying, come And lay your burdens here. Because I didn't put that on you. In chapter 9, at the end, we saw a summary of what had happened. So that Aaron, 9.22, Aaron lifted his hands toward the people, blessed them. And he came down from offering. Now I mentioned this last week, but this is important enough to say it again. He came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering. And that that is clearly the order of that worship. That what God wanted first was to give them forgiveness. Second, to give me all of yourself. The burnt offering. And third, then you will have peace with God. Let's go through this again. Forgiveness... Surrender, then peace. Now some of us, in trying to attain peace, are giving way too much of ourselves into this and and that, and we're hurting ourselves, and we're stressed, and we're burnt out. Listen again. 
God wants us to approach Him understanding these steps. One, He forgives us. We come to Him and confess our wrongs and our sins, not to focus on how bad we are and how short we follow the standard, but to focus on how good He is and how willing He is to say, I know you don't feel like you're enough, but I sent Jesus because you are enough for me to send Him to you. So that the forgiveness offering was, is to remind us that as I come to God, He already looks at me and says, because of Jesus, you are enough as you are. We can then learn the limits of what we can do. You might remember how the burnt offering had the worshiper doing a lot of the work, cutting the animal's throat and killing it. And, and then uh, the priest did some things, but the worshiper would have to like clean the uh, entrails and there was some cutting to do. And the whole animal was dissected and used in different ways. And then the whole thing was burned. Brothers and sisters, when God is asking us to approach him, he says, first, because of my son, you're forgiven and you are enough. Then he says, second, I want you to know you, who you are. I want you to know your limits. I want you to know your inner workings so that you can figure out, this just isn't working for me. And God doesn't need me to do that. God wants me to do this because this is how I'm created. Sometimes we give too much of ourselves because we don't know our own limits. And sometimes we do too much and burn ourselves out because we don't understand that the cross is saying you're already enough. And instead we're running from our shame. We kind of know we're forgiven up here in our heads, but we don't live like we're forgiven. And we're out running our shame, trying to busy ourselves so much and do so much so that we don't remember the things that we've done so that they can't catch up to us. We're really good at being busy rather than simply acknowledging that I truly am enough in God's eyes. So the forgiveness, hey, stop killing yourself because I didn't ask you to. The burnt offering, surrender yourself to me because I will never use more than you can handle. I will only use you and no more. And then, finally, the peace offering. Because when we can see the, this method, when we follow this path, there is true peace with God. There actually is a point where we in Jesus can be in the Holy of Holies, not because we uprooted ourselves and threw ourselves away just to get more experience of God, but because we were willing to go through the work and the patience of God does forgive me. Even as I look at my own ugliness, I don't have to be ashamed of this. He in Jesus is embracing and I can now give all of me, even the things I don't like, and God can find use for them. God wants me. God wants me just as I am. And in those realizations, you have heavenly peace on earth. That is peace, as Jesus said, that the world cannot give. Because the world is always going to say, you're not rich enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not slim enough. Your, olds aren't, your clothes aren't new enough. Your car is definitely not new enough. And on and on and on. You wake up. I did not get enough sleep. I don't have enough granola. I, well, maybe I have too much. I don't know. You don't have enough. <laughs> All of this. Um, this is how the world works. But peace comes to those who are willing to look at the sacrifice of Jesus and know who they are and give themselves as they are to him that is what Leviticus invites us into 
not the path of Nadab and Abihu, who say, we just want to get there now. Come on, guys, let's step where we should not be. So, brothers, sisters, friends, I want to challenge you this week to do what Aaron and the priests did for one week. At the end of chapter 8, we read how they remained in the tent for seven days. And on the eighth day, the glory of God came. But for seven days, they stayed in that tent and they were commanded not to leave. Now, we're very practical people here, aren't we? There is no way that any of us, well, most of us at least, can sign up for a seven-day monastic experience where we just move on over with the monks and sit there for seven days and don't leave. Like, I get that. If you can do that, maybe you should try it. Maybe it would be good for you. Detox a little bit from your life. But, 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 the rest of us, for seven days, have a spot in your life where you are in the tent. Which means you might need technology away. You might need work, grading, and things away. You might need kids away a little bit. And just to sit in that tent and do what? You'll be tempted. Five minutes, you'll be tempted. Oh, but the laundry isn't folded. Not yet. God said, don't leave the tent. So don't leave it. Focus on the cross and your forgiveness. Just meditate on Jesus on the cross. And the way that he's, his love is holding him there for you. And what it says about your worth to God. And then, how can I give myself to God so that I don't give more than myself to everything else? How do I give my ears, my eyes, my mouth, my thoughts, my talents, my friends, the time at this part, this work, this assignment, this chore, this errand? How do I take these things in my life and devote them entirely to Him? You can do this before your day and kind of predict, this is what's going to happen, this is how I want to see it be devoted to God. Oh man, when you run into that person that you kind of, out of habit, say something snarky to, you might be like, eh, I was just in the tent. Um, I remembered I'm going to say something really nice about their hair today. As much as you hate it. <laughs> or you can do it at the end of your day and look backward and say, these things I failed and Father, forgive me, but thank you for accepting me. This, I would like to next time be able to go deeper into this person's life. So Lord, next time I meet with them, give me the grace to ask one more question. Or to have one more insight about your love for them. You can look backward and ask for help for the future. Or you can do this in the morning and look forward and say, God, help me with what's to come. It doesn't matter. You need to find your tent. And you need to sit there. And I'm just encouraging for 30 minutes. If you can do more, you will be... The point is... It's there in forgiveness and our surrender that peace comes. And to the burnt out, God is not demanding in that moment. 
He's not saying, let your prayer life keep going word after word. In fact, you may not have much to say in prayer. And you might actually find that to be the most healing prayer you can give right now. God's not saying you have to read four chapters because you'll get behind your one-year Bible plan if you don't. He's saying, just be in the tent with me. That He accepts us in the cross and that we can give ourselves as we are in the burnt offering, that alone will bring us peace with Him. And that's what we need. In this stressed out world, in this world of not enough, in the world of demands, we need the true peace of God in our hearts, in our lives, and in all that we do. And man, it'll be amazing when you are willing to sit with the God who forgives and to think about all those things, the things that start coming to you like, wow, I didn't realize I've actually been trying to bury the fact that I have been harboring bitterness and unforgiveness toward this person for months. I didn't even realize that I've been doing this busy thing so I don't think about this mean person. And in that moment in the tent, it's going to come up and you say, oh, take it, God. And then this burden that was pressing on your soul that you didn't know was there will be gone. And that's when you'll know it was there because suddenly you will feel more peace and a greater lightness than you had for a long time. There are things we don't know we are trying to outrun until we stop running and sit in the tent. That's probably also why they needed seven days. Friends, if we want to lead others, the priests have to sit with God first. They have to go through their forgiveness and their surrender first. And then we can bless others as we lead them on theirs. So, Seven days. That's exactly how much time we have between now and the next time we're teaching Leviticus 11 through 15. Seven days. Can you do it? Set your time goal and just sit in the tent. By the way, 15 minutes? God's not going to be like, only 15 minutes? Come on! You know that Juan did two hours? Yeah, then you can just remind God, God, remind Juan that's not enough. (laughs) God is not going to keep... Remember, love keeps no record. Um, It says of wrongs. I would assume it doesn't keep a record of who's better than the other anyways. Guys, God is going to say, awesome. That's 15 minutes of more peace than you had before. So let's set a goal for seven days to visit the tent. Forgiveness, surrender, his peace will come.